Area 941 podcast are produced and distributed by Community Powered 94.1 KPFA Radio. Please help support Area 941 at kpfa.org. This is the Area 941 Radio Walensky Podcast. I'm Richard Walensky, and we're talking about books, about theater, about film, about television, and from time to time, even about KPFA, Pacifica Radio. On April 16, 2020, on the new KPFA Bookwaves Arts Waves Hour, I aired a 30-minute documentary tribute I'd prepared in 2015 honoring E.L. Doctorow, upon his death at the age of 84 on July 21st of that year. It featured quotes from two interviews aired on Bookwaves. This podcast contains both interviews in their entirety with minor contemporary edits. The first was recorded on May 12, 2004, and the second in either September or October 2009. Welcome to Bookwaves on Cover to Cover. I'm Richard Walensky. My guest is E.L. Doctorow, whose most recent book is a collection of five short stories, Sweet Land Stories, also the author of such novels as Ragtime, The Waterworks, City of God, Book of Daniel, Welcome to Hard Times, Loon Lake, World's Fair, Billy Bathgate, and so forth. E.L. Doctorow, your new book, let's start with talking about this collection of short stories. All of these stories appeared at one point or another in The New Yorker, is that correct? Uh, four of them did. One came out in the Virginia Quarterly Review. I haven't written that many stories. What happened was I was asked to edit an anthology of best short stories of 2000, and I read about 150 stories. You read them blind. You don't know who wrote them or where they published. And the ones I chose were by young writers mostly who were either newly arrived here or who were first-generation Americans. So they were from China and Korea and Japan and Eastern Europe, the Caribbean, Latin America. And they weren't writing the classic modern short story that you find in Dubliners, for instance, where the entry point is very close to the denouement and everything turns on the revelation, the revelatory moment or the epiphany, that Joyce called it. These stories had some extension to them, and they hark back to the tales of the 19th century. And that opens up something for me. I felt a little more comfortable as a novelist with a story that could go on for a while and not be built around a single scene, as it were. So these stories are a little longer than most stories are, I think. And at one point, I thought of calling the book Little Novels because I felt very comfortable doing these pieces. They're all, uh, as opposed to City of God, very straightforward narrative. They all deal with themes in a very broad sense that we're dealing with today in terms of culture, in terms of criminality, I would say. The first story is House on the Plains about the uh, mother and her son who, uh, with some degree of self-righteousness, arranged to kill people in order to improve their own station in life. And um, I would think about the other stories rather thematically as about people who are not quite rooted and who wander around the country and uh, keep looking for their own place, their place, so that all the stories together, although I didn't know this when I started, 
cover the entire geography of the country from Washington, D.C. to Alaska. They're all in states of longing, these characters. And uh, and I didn't realize this. I, I didn't write these stories with the idea of any kind of thematic connection among them. But when I finished, I decided to put this book out, I took those stories and put them in the order in which they were written and published and discovered that the major characters are women. It's a book about women. And where they're not the major characters, they are certainly the catalysts that create the crisis or get the action going. They deal with not merely rootedness, but also lying. There's a lot of lying in the book. A lot of deceit, uh, the Baby Wilson story about the kidnapping, certainly the first story. Walter John Harmon is a liar. Well, he's a prophet. We never uh, know if he's a liar or yeah, not. Yeah, well, but you can kind of read between the lines. The way to get that story done correctly was not to take a cynical attitude to right. this situation. People are very serious about religion in this country, and there's such a variety of religious expression that sometimes it takes the forms that it takes in this story. The basic uh, principle of, of Walter John Harmon is that he's, his followers give him all their sins, their sins of all the values that they have uh, taken unto themselves during the course of their lives they're now giving to him, including their money and uh, their personal beings. He is a sense of sacrificial, sacrificial prophet because he won't go to the heavenly city, as he tells them. They will because they'll be pure, but he'll go down to hell. He's a con man. You he know. may very well be. He yeah. does drive a Hummer, that's true. He does drive a Hummer, and he's got the perfect con, which is I can do whatever bad things I want. I'm just taking care of your sins. Jolene a life is a very sympathetic portrait of a woman who is struggling to make ends meet and wanders city to city, winds up with the wrong people. When you were writing it, it seemed that you had a huge amount of sympathy for her. Yes, the answer is I agree with that. I've, I found uh, that it was not a uh, one-sided portrait at all. The story begins with Jolene uh, to get away from her foster parents who uh, mistreat her. She marries a sweet, young, kind of stupid fellow in town who drives an oil delivery truck and lives with him and his uncle, and the disasters begin at that point in her life. So she's 15 when the story starts, and she's about 29 when it's finished. And during the course of her wanderings across the country and her different relationships she's involved with, she grows, she learns, and I've decided there's kind of gallantry to her. She wasn't merely a victim. For me, reading Sweetland's stories was quite a shift from the book I'd read before, which was City of God, which is not a straightforward narrative by any means. I want to talk a little about City of God. There's a novelist in it named Everett who has some of E.L. Doctorow's background. There's also within it, at least through the first part of the book, the weaving of a Holocaust story told from the point of view of a child. There's uh, the theft of a cross from a church in New York that winds up in a kind of alternative synagogue. There appears to be an autobiography of sorts of the philosopher Ludwig Wittgenstein, poetry based on Tin Pan Alley, 
and various philosophical discourses scattered throughout. What were the grounding principles behind the style and content of the book? Well, the book is a collage, and it purports to be the day book of a professional writer named Everett. And Everett basically records the life of his mind. He's always looking for material. And he hears about this large brass cross that was is stolen from an Episcopal church on the Lower East Side and ends up on the roof of, a, as you call it, an alternative synagogue, a synagogue of evolutionary Judaism up on the Upper West Side. And he, he sort of makes friends with the Episcopal priest Pemberton and the rabbi later, um, Sarah Blumenthal. That's the sort of the spine of the book and the pursuit of this mystery of who took the cross and who put it on the roof of the synagogue is what keeps everything together. But Sarah has a father who is a child during the Holocaust, and Everett, learning this, imagines that man's life in a ghetto in Lithuania in the 1930s and 40s. He's involved in the writing of movies, so he talks a lot about movies. The poetry based on popular song is Everett's game he plays with lyrics of standards like Stardust and Me and My Shadow. And he imagines something called the Midrash Jazz Quartet, which is the verbal equivalent of four musicians playing, but instead of playing music, they do riffs on the original lyric, just as jazz musicians do riffs on the original theme. So all of these things are swirling about in Everett's mind. He's a carrier of his own time. He's a carrier of all the terrible events, the history of his time, the culture. And that's why the book is the way it is. I have done other books that are collages in form. The Book of Daniel is like that. Loon Lake is like that. But I have also written linear materials such as Ragtime and Welcome to Hard Times and The Waterworks. You never know when you start exactly what the book has to be. You have to wait till it decides what it must do to, to work. So you don't try to make a book difficult or make it easy. You just have to uh, make it work on its own terms. How do you, as a writer, know that when it's working? And how do you know when it's not? You feel good or you feel bad. That's it? So it's very simple. What you have to learn is that the signs that something is not working are very small signs, and you mustn't overlook them. For instance, you can be reading through some pages that you've done, and you find yourself skipping over a paragraph because you want to get to the next one, which is more interesting to you. So why? What, what's happening there? It's a very small sign, but it can mean eventually throwing away 50 or 100 pages of text. But it all comes out of feeling. It all comes out of a a sense you have of things. It was not even articulated particularly. Is there a point where you look and go, gee, Everett, maybe he's too much like E.L. Doctorow, or aren't you working on that level at all? No, of course every book is about, is uh, encodes your, li your own life. Sure. But if you use the word code, you see you're talking about something cryptic, and the code keeps changing. It's all good code Devisers know that you can't stay with the same code every time. There's a, a quote in the middle of the book by Everett, and uh, let me read you this quote, because given the fact that you've had several of your works translated into film, 
It's, it's a curious statement. I wonder if it's just Everett or if it's also something that you agree with, which is literary experience extends impression into discourse, <clears throat> film implodes discourse, and film language, in quotes, is an oxymoron. Well, that's certainly Everett's point of view. Um, I, I'm sort of leaning in that direction. It doesn't mean I scorn film or hate film, but it is a, a, a fact that watching a film is a, an act of inference. You learn what's going on from a lot of nonverbal signals that are given to you in terms of the lighting and the, the set and the position of the camera and the way the characters are dressed, the way the hair is dressed and the, how they move their eyes. And before anyone says anything, as a director once told me, 95% of a scene is delivered, especially after you drop in the music, maybe 98% before the dialogue. So, yes, it's true that he has a love-hate relationship with film, Everett does. But I think that's not a bad analysis, actually. The trouble people have had making films of my books, uh, I mean, everyone tells me how cinematic my stuff is, except directors. They know that it's difficult because a lot of the action is moral action. It's internal. Right. So the problem is always, how do you make this play? So you have a first-person narrator. You're looking at the world through that narrator's eyes, as in these stories of Sweetland stories or Billy Bathgate, for instance. But in film, you can't do that. What you do in film is you watch people behave. It's just the reverse. You're on the outside looking at the person. So I feel about those films that three out of the four were pretty much failures. And uh, the fourth is uh, not quite a failure, although it messes up badly. But I'm fondest of that one. That's the film I made with Sidney Lumet based on the book of Daniel. Daniel, that's with uh, Timothy Hutton. Yeah. There's some beautiful stuff in that picture, although it doesn't totally work. And of course, it was economically an absolute disaster. But Ragtime is the one that, I guess maybe it's just because of Cagney's appearance in it. You think that's a failure then? Well, you know, because he wanted to use Cagney and, and have the enormous publicity value of that, the part was expanded and so distorted the rest of the piece badly because that's actually in the book a very small role. But that wasn't the only problem he made, the director. He was interested basically in the story of Cole House Walker and not particularly in anyone else. And if you pull out the threads of this tapestry, the whole thing collapsed, which this did. It got very heavy, sort of folded badly, I think. On the other hand, in reflection and having seen the musical version, I realized that Ragtime is not a realistic novel, but film is inevitably very literal. The presumption is you're watching something that's actually happening. Someone's on a stage singing about his feelings and props drop down from the ceiling and sets change in front of your eyes. You're not, you don't have that burden of realism, you see. So the movie had to somehow convert a non-realistic novel, a, a, an impertinent kind of highly satirical riff into a realistic account, epic story, and it, it just didn't work. I've had some interest from film people in a couple of these stories, in Sweetland stories, and it might actually be possible to make a decent film or two out of some of this material. But I would warn whoever these people are that the stories are tricky, and there's a lot in them that doesn't 
quite meet the eye. These characters live in their own universe. Right. I was thinking in particular the lawyer who tells the story, the first person story of Walter John Harmon. If you turn that into third person, what the reader gleans on his own or on her own, such as who Harmon is and what is actually happening in this cult, if you see it straightforward, it loses that completely. Yeah, it does. The voices of these people are how the stories are written. And you can't write a piece until you have its voice. And certainly in uh, the case of Walter John Harmon, the, the lawyer cultist, who eventually becomes the leader after the prophet disappears, is the main character of the story. This brings up something that I've been trying to puzzle through in talking to various writers, which is the case of what is voice. And I've asked several people what that is. Ethan Kanan teaches about voice, saying it's the most important thing there is for a writer to learn. And some people give me a completely different impression of what they think voice is. It's the language you find. It's the diction that characterizes the speaker. And in the third person, it characterizes the mind of the character you're writing about. It's that simple. But the language you find precedes any intention you have. In this story of Baby Wilson, Lester, who's talking, wakes up at noon as the woman who he's living on, because that's the kind of guy he is, walks in with the newborn and claims it's their baby. What he does is he gets out of bed and puts on his jeans and a fresh shirt and goes to the Frigidaire and gets a beer. You know that what Lester is in three sentences. At least I did. And the story just unfolds from that. He has a certain way of talking. Earl, the young boy whose mother likes to kill off immigrant men who want to marry her, has a certain diction, a certain controlled vocabulary that defines him. So a voice is, a, uh, is two things. It's, it's what you hear of, of a character's being, A, and B, what you convert into the necessary diction to bring that character on the page. I keep wondering when I recall from the time I read Ragtime, and I think it may be one of the reasons why the movie doesn't work and parts of the musical, I think, do, is because the title of the book itself gives us a sense of the voice. Yeah, it probably does. In the case of novels, more than stories, titles are generative, and uh, you use them up as you go along and then find more titles, and then the one you end up with at the end of the book becomes the title of the book. That's the way it happened with Ragtime. When I was watching the musical, I kept thinking because it begins in a ragtime era and ends in a jazz era, that ragtime, the beat, the sense of ragtime, cannot be at the end of the musical. And yet it seems to me that as it gets there, it seems to lose something. What I remember is the reprise when the actors come out for their uh, bows and the orchestra goes into a pretty fast rag. I can't uh, speak in defense of the musical because I didn't write the music or the lyrics. Well, you work closely with uh, Terrence McNally. I gave them a lot of notes, yeah. Yeah. They listened for a while, but as the piece developed and the notes got more detailed, they they listened less and less. (laughs) (laughs) But for a while there, I think I was a pretty good navigator, and when they ran into trouble, they went right back to the book, and I was very gratified by that, and also by Terrence's use of lines from the book in his libretto. 
What was the sense of your notes to uh, Aaron's and Flaherty and McNally on Ragtime? It was to make sure that various strands of the plot were given uh, equal attention and that having experienced the movie treatment, I was very anxious that the three families be given their just due as they are in the in the book. Because basically what happens is the three families are destroyed and the remnants of the three come together as one family at the end. And then I thought somewhere there should be a song about something and I thought Tata should sing a song about how he got to be a film director. And Lynn wrote wonderful lyrics for that song. And Steve... Atlantic City, I think. Yeah, yeah. Buffalo Nickel is the name of the song. And that was the kind of thing. They were very responsive. And the producer, who later fell afoul of law... (laughs) Garth Dravinsky, yeah. yeah. Gave me everything I wanted. You know, I said, this scene looks kind of cheap. And he would go out and get someone to do huge projections to give the scene some depth. And suddenly you're looking at uh, Penn Station in all its glory. He didn't stint. Terrence McNally said that the uh, weakling nut on it was so high that it needed like virtually a sold-out audience to even break even Yeah, because of that. Well, I think it probably would have, it ran for two years, yeah. but if not for the backstage financial difficulties, the corporate difficulties that Garth got into with invest his other, his newer investors, who then took the company over from him. If not for that, the show would have run for five or six years because the audiences loved the show. But the minute Garth was out of there, the marketing ended because the new investors were so hurt and angry at the way he cooked the books or allegedly cooked the books. They lost their verve for the piece. And that's why it closed, I think, because it did fill the theater. E.L. Doctorow, did you have any dealings on uh, either the movie of Billy Bathgate or uh, Welcome to Hard Times? No. Um, with Welcome to Hard Times, I, I had a talk with Henry Fonda, who had high hopes for the film, but turned out to have no control over it. I didn't write it. I just went to a screening. It was the first time I had anything to do with it. And, of course, was appalled. It's the second worst film ever to come out of Hollywood, that picture. What do you think is the worst? The first? Yeah. Oh, that's a picture called Swamp Fire with Johnny Weissmuller. But, you know, years later, Fonda was asked, uh, that French film cineast magazine, what his greatest professional disappointment was. And he said, welcome to hard times. He thought it was going to be another Oxbow incident. I knew that was a dangerous thought when he said that. Well, E.L. Doctorow, you began your career. Your first novel was Welcome to Hard Times, and prior to that, you'd been a staff reader for a film company. What was the film company? Columbia Pictures, now Sony. And uh, you, you said That about, was good training. You know, it you, was? You read a book a day and wrote a synopsis and then a comment as to whether uh, it would make a film or not, and then you sent your pages up to the executives who didn't have time to read or perhaps couldn't read and uh, they read your story that you converted from the book you were doing. In fact, that's how Welcome to Hard Times got written because this was in the late 50s and westerns were very popular then. And I had to read a lot of lousy westerns and I wrote what I thought was a parody story of 
the westerns, and someone said, this is good, you will turn into a novel. So I took that story, crossed out the title, and wrote chapter one, and continued from there. And then I got serious about the book. I thought I could use a work in counterpoint to the reader's expectations of the genre and do something pretty serious. Had you done any novel writing, any attempted novel writing or short story writing prior to that? Yes, I I was struggling. I was quite young at the time and struggling with an autobiographical novel that wasn't going anywhere. And this taught me a lesson. Whatever you're planning, whatever you're outlining, whatever you're researching, whatever you're struggling with, none of that is writing. Every book begins then from some sort of creative accent, whether I was working for a film company whether in the case of Loon Lake, I was driving in the Adirondacks and saw a sign that said Loon Lake. And without any great planning or intention, you write to find out what it is you're writing and uh, make these same discoveries if it turns into a book that, that the reader will make. So you're both the writer and the reader at the same time. Is there an outlining process for you? None. What attracted you? Had you always been interested in uh, learning about the Rosenbergs for the Book of Daniel? Well, in that case, I, I hadn't paid much attention to to the case when it was going on. And when they were executed, I was serving in the army in uh, Germany in 1954. And then in the late 60s, when everything broke out, in the student rebellions and the anti-war movement and the civil rights movement, and this new left phenomenon sprung up out of the colleges. I began to think what the difference was between the, the, that, the new radicalism and the old radicalism, the spontaneous uh, anti-intellectual in many cases, organized dissent, as opposed to the 30s form where the communists who did a lot of good work organizing labor uh, unions and in uh, fighting for civil rights in the South. They were all run overseas, and they were highly intellectual. They had theory. So I thought maybe there's a book in that difference between the new left and the old left, and then I realized that maybe a fulcrum for that would be the Rosenberg case. So I read some news stories and files and transcripts, and then I got to work. But it didn't go well at the beginning, and we come back to voice now. I wrote about 150 pages of that book, and they were terrible. They were awful. And I thought, I threw them across the room. I thought, I don't deserve to be a writer if I could take material like this and make it boring. And in an act of sort of mockery of my own pretense as a writer, my own presumption, I started to write something else, and it turned out to be the first page of the book of Daniel, and the moral of that story was that I shouldn't write the book, Daniel should write. Once I had him, the book just flowed. So every book on some level needs that moment when suddenly it clicks. Yeah, if you're lucky, it happens right away. Then you get that voice right away. In the case of Daniel, it took me about six months of bad work to find the way to do it. What a ragtime. I recall at the time the uh, reviewers talking about the way you would use fi fictional and non-fictional characters and intermingled them as some kind of revolutionary practice, but it's been done before. Sure it has. It was done back in the 18th century. Yeah. And when I was a kid, I would read 
the Count of Monte Cristo or the Three Musketeers. Cardinal sure. Richelieu was a character in the Kings uh, in Tolstoy's War and Peace. Napoleon is a character. But apparently there was some way I was doing that that people felt was new, and uh, it did kind of open the floodgates because a lot of people started to uh, fictionalize, use historical characters, uh, felt entitled to intrude in the sacred realm of actual names and events. I mentioned before the voice of ragtime, which is what grabbed me, and I think grabbed most of the readers within a page or two. Was that something that took a while to do, or was that also, uh, or was that quick? That was the book I wrote after Daniel, and um, I was emotionally exhausted by Daniel and didn't realize it and kept writing and couldn't get anywhere for about a year. And at that time, we were living in New Rochelle in an old house, and I had a study up on the third floor, and uh, I was staring at the wall, so I started to write about the wall. That's the kind of day you have sometimes. And the house it was attached to, that was built in 1906, it's top of the Broadview Avenue Hill. Well, what did things look like in 1906? Well, down on North Avenue, there were the trolleys going down to the Long Island Sound, and there's no air conditioning. People wore white clothes and carried parasols against the sun, and men had straw boaters. And there was a kind of insularity of the upper middle class, and so that black people were invisible and immigrants non-existent. Teddy Roosevelt was president, and one image followed another, and I was off the wall and into the book. Well, Sweetland Stories, now that you are becoming more familiar with working within that form, do you continue plan to continue writing stories? Well, I don't know. These things come to you, and then you do them. Uh, I'm working on a novel now. That'll probably take me through the fall, and then we'll see. You've been listening to an interview with E.L. Doctorow, whose latest book is a collection of short stories, Sweet Land Stories. I'm Richard Walensky on Cover to Cover. This interview with E.L. Doctorow was recorded May 12, 2004 in the KPFA studios. The second interview coming up now was also recorded in the KPFA studios during the tour for his novel Homer and Langley, and it was recorded in either late September or October 2009. Welcome to Book Waves on Cover to Cover. I'm Richard Walensky. My guest is E.L. Doctorow, whose latest novel is Homer and Langley. Earlier novels include The March, Ragtime, Billy Bathgate, recently also a collection of essays titled Creationists, former senior editor at New American Library, editor-in-chief at Dial Press, and considered one of America's finest writers. E.L. Doctorow, this new novel... Homer and Langley deals with brothers, the Collier brothers, who were real people. Before we go into how you discovered them, in real life, their birth and death dates were around 1885 to 1947, but the Collier brothers of Homer and Langley are about 10 or 15 years younger, and they live well into the 70s. Yeah, I um, extended their lives. But you see, their folklore, their myth, and so... No matter what a particular author does with the time frame, uh, they'll, they're immortal. They keep going. Well, how did you discover the Collier brothers? Well, when I was a boy, it was a big story in the paper when they died. The police had to hack into the house because it was so filled with stuff. They found one body, but not the other. turned out 
that Homer was completely dependent on Langley. Langley was a bit paranoid at the end of his life and had constructed from these bales of newspapers and various other things traps and snares for presumed interlopers and prowlers. There were rumors that they were very wealthy and Langley uh, assumed that they would be robbed. What happened, of course, is he got caught in one of his own traps and buried under tons of stuff. And they discovered his body a couple of weeks after they discovered Homer's body and they realized that Homer had died of starvation. Langley was his sole support. The real Homer was blind as well as... Real Homer was blind, but didn't become uh, sightless as early as I decided he would become. And that came of the first line of the book, which is, I'm Homer the Blind Brother. That line set up everything for me. It would be a memoir of sorts. He would be the narrator, and he would tell the uh, their story. Well, once you put that together and said that sentence, of course, Homer comes up. Was there any attempt to link this Homer with that Homer in terms of creating not, the odyssey of his life? Not, not by me, but leave it to the reader to do that. <laughs> <laughs> when you're working on this, then, that brings up a question. What themes are conscious? Or are you just pretty much telling the story and not worrying about themes at all? For me, uh, writing is improvisatory, and you start not knowing really where you're going. And you write to find out what you're writing. And the book begins to tell you what to do and give you direction. You need sentences that generate other sentences, basically. And after a while, you understand what you're doing. And you have to make good on the premises that you've set up for the book. I invented this background for Homer and Langley. And it turned out that what interested me more than anything more than their fact that they were aggregators. By the way, I don't like the phrase pack rats. What interested me about the story when this news first broke, thousands of people collected around the house to watch the cops throw stuff out. And they were instant folklore. But to me, the mystery of them wasn't the fact that they were these eccentrics, that they had opted out, that they had come from a well-to-do family. They were pretty well-educated, cultivated, and they made this choice. They closed the door, pulled the shutters tight, and retreated. It was, in my mind, an like, equivalent in momentousness to an act of emigration. They were leaving this country and, and making another country inside that house. So I viewed the writing of the book as, as an act of breaking and entering to see what was going on there and wanting to get into their minds and figure them out. And so what you do, of course, you get into your own mind and, and that happens. Obviously, for me at least, when I began reading it, I thought of Grey Gardens, but it's my understanding that that was never really on your mind at all. No, I've since heard about Grey Gardens. I, I didn't see that movie. I knew about those women but it seems to me that's clinical material. I wasn't interested in the clinical, factual uh, issues of their of mental illness in Homer and Langley, that they were considered great eccentrics in their day, but subsequently they're defined uh, psychiatrically as obsessive-compulsive disorder victims in their hoarding. 
When you go into that world and you begin to explore, obviously, the differences between what really happened and the Homer and Langwilly of E.L. Doctorow move in different directions. So you create the reason for Langley's strange behavior in what happens during World War I, whereas, in fact, we really don't know. Is that correct? Well, once people achieve this kind of folklore status, there are two existences for the Colliers. There's the physical, factual, historic existence, and there's the mythic existence. So I ignored one and chose the other to interpret that you don't do research when you're dealing with myth. You interpret the myth. For instance, Aeschylus, Sophocles, and Euripides all had a shot at the house of Atreus. I just felt that I would try to understand this mythic existence of theirs. The same kind of double kind of life that Abraham Lincoln has in our minds. There was the actual Lincoln and there's the mythic Lincoln. Of course, these guys are not as exalted as that, but it's the same kind of situation. There's a certain point, of course, where you really go off, which is when you have them live 30 extra years. Well, I needed every one of those years to tell this story. See, Langley, who's come out of World War I quite bitter, kind of grim, verging on very ironic, dry, acerb kind of personality. Langley begins to collect newspapers. In those days, New York City had seven or nine dailies and a lot of smaller papers. He collects them all, and it turns out his idea is by researching these newspapers over the years, learning what seminal human behavior is, and on the base of that data, creating his own newspaper that he expects to be the final newspaper that no one will ever have to read another one. It's the eternally current, one edition only Collier's newspaper. It will cover every conceivable human act and will already be in there. So it's kind of a prophetic newspaper. The voice of the book is Homer, and he's blind. I would think that that would present special problems for you as a writer. It certainly is, a narrator, yes, in, in his voice. And it was an interesting uh, challenge. I didn't find it as difficult as I thought it would be. And it turned out to give me, oddly enough, certain insights from his point of view that I might not have had otherwise if he was a sighted person. But he's generally forbearing. He understands his brother. He sympathizes with his brother. And he's capable of quite a bit of humor, dry humor of his own. And uh, he goes along with Langley's excesses. And there are certain images that come to mind that I really like as I think about this book. For instance, when they sort of inherit a bicycle wheel for two and ride around the neighborhood with Langley in the front, of course, and Homer in the back. There's some factual basis for the, some of the things they do. For instance, Langley did collect pieces of a Model T Ford and bring them into the house. I don't know if he actually reconstructed the entire Ford, but I have him doing that in the dining room. He, he brings the Model T. Not really knowing why he's done this or what its purpose is, he has this feeling that something is of value and will be useful, but he doesn't quite know in what way. So, of course, the car standing in the dining room begins to collect cobwebs and they throw other things on top of it. I enjoyed that scene. It seemed almost that because we're not actually seeing what's going on, in essence, we're 
not visualizing the decrepitness of it all because Homer doesn't see the decrepitness and it's almost like we're seeing the ghost of what's really there. That's a good point. One of the issues as I was writing was not to overdo the accumulation of things. So when it came up in the action, for instance, when the fire department comes in because there's a fire in the, in the little backyard and the hose begins to flip around as the, as the water comes through it, that gives me an opportunity to describe some of the things in the rooms. When there's a blackout and they're leading the hippies down through the house, I can do that. But I always try to have a reason for mentioning these things that have been collected. You also have Homer go out into the world, and whether he actually went out or not is immaterial, but he goes out into the world, and actually Langley does as well. And yet, I guess because he's blind, he never really leaves the house, even when he goes out. Well, he doesn't go that far. As he's going blind as a boy, he makes a point of mapping out the neighborhood by the number of steps it takes to get to the end of the block, and he sort of measures out a 10 or 20 block area, and he also gets to know Central Park pretty well because they're living across the street from the park. It's true they do get up, but not very far. The original mansion is past the park, right? The actual mansion was on 128th Street and 5th Avenue. In fact, one of the possible reasons I got to thinking about this as a possible book is that there was an article in the New York Times about six or seven years ago. They had no heirs, and this house was such a mess and such a wreck that the city tore it down and made a little park there on the corner of 128th Street and 5th Avenue. That was in, like, 1948 or 49. A few years ago, the people in the neighborhood decided that they didn't like the name of that park. It was called the Collier Brothers Park. There's a brass plaque up there, and it's the Collier Brothers Park. And they wanted to change. It's a lovely little park, the, the footprint of a brownstone. Incidentally, the neighborhood is quite elegant with these beautiful row houses. They still felt the neighborhood was being shamed or defamed. So I figured, gee, 50 years after their death, they're still disturbing people. That's interesting. <laughs> That's myth. For some reason, along the course of writing the book, I didn't quite know why, but I needed to have them facing Central Park. So I moved their house down several blocks in the late uh, high 90s, say. Okay, in my brain, they were in the Frick Museum, but what do I know? <laughs> no, that was a little further down. Yeah. The actual park extends to 110th Street. By extending their lives, you were able to deal with the change of consciousness. And one of the major changes that I see is that in real life, of course, these people were gone right after the war. But now, by living through the 60s, they almost get a second life and become, in a sense, heroes to hippies. They become hippies. There's this weird circle that comes back, and they're suddenly in vogue again. Well, what happens in the book is that they wander out into the park when there's an anti-war rally. And because they're so shabbily dressed and they haven't cut their hair, and they're recognized as sort of proto-hippies by some of these hippies in the park who come back and crash. They, their house becomes a pad. And they do very well. And it's a period of great elation for them with all these energetic young people around. And uh, at one point, 
this very engrossed by the diction of the 1960s. And one of the uh, characters sings a song that begins, Good Morning Teaspoon. Homer and Langley are each interpreting what that could possibly mean, <laughs> and neither of them gets it. It's a song by Richard Farina, Good Morning Teaspoon, Give Me Back My Brain. Do you admire the Colliers? My Colliers, yeah. yeah. I have great affection for them, yeah. They're very interesting, yeah. I didn't notice any, but do you have any um, cameos from characters from your other books in this one? No. Not at all. You chose not to. It's not a matter of choice. This book and this situation and its meanings and uh, what it's about have really nothing to do with any of the other books. It seems that what you're writing is almost like somebody in a closed environment peering out and seeing a 50-year history of America. Yeah, well, at a certain point, oddly enough, I began to think of this as a road novel, as these two guys walking along and then lifelong conversation, back and forth, back and forth, having adventures. But, of course, they don't move. They're more or less housebound. And so I think the road is coming through them. See, the world really doesn't let them alone. Kids throw rocks at the house and... They have this enormous titanic battle with the utilities, with the phone company and the electric company, and then finally the city turns their water off. And it's a sense of that people who do this are a great insult to the community around them somehow. The idea of opting out, of course, is historic in the United States. I mean, you could say that, for instance, the Beats were classic opter-outers. So were the hippies. So is Greta Garbo. <laughs> but this has happened all through our history. For instance, in Westchester County, north of New York, in the 1920s, there was someone known as the Leather Man. He was this gigantic fellow, old man, and he had these plates of leather all over him, dressed like an old Viking, the pointed hat and a lot of pieces of fur on his shoulder, and he had a big staff. And he lived in the woods. He wouldn't talk to anyone. People left him food. He's very gentle. He had just decided to live that way, not in civilization. So in a sense, the Colliers withdrew, and the country came after them. The country followed them in there. I know that a lot of this bubbles up from the unconscious, but you know, this book was written, I guess, last year and the year before, the past couple of years. I actually started it when uh, the previous administration was in power. How much of where we are today is sitting there in the back of your mind. I mean, is, is it a coincidence that you write a book about Sherman's march through the South during the height of the Iraq War, for instance? Or is that just... Well, these are never it, conscious decisions, yeah. but I think like most people who spend their lives writing fiction, you do think differently from most people. You're not an autonomous spirit. You're in the world, uh, but you you translate it in some ways, metaphorically, that allows people or that leads people to think you know exactly what you're doing at any given time. But of course, uh, there was this war going on, and war was on my mind. It was on everyone's mind. With General Sherman, I had thought of that book uh, maybe 20 years before when I read a topical history of Sherman's march. It was quite unique for the Civil War. 
as murderous as the war was, this was almost a separate thing. And I remember thinking of it as possibly the armature for a novel. But I didn't do anything about it for 20 years. But one day, probably in about 2003 or four, it became the only book I could write. The last mention in Homer and Langley of any actual event is um, People's Temple, 1978. You end it shortly thereafter. We don't know how much further. But I keep thinking of where America derailed and how America derailed to get us to George W. Bush. You know, I just wonder in your book and in other books, it, it seems like now that we're past Bush, but we don't know where we are today, I wonder if it's time to start reflecting back and figuring out how we got from point A to point B, and on some unconscious level, maybe by writing this particular book, which spans a broader period than other books, you're doing that as well. Well, it's possible. When you're writing the book, you're staying in it. You have to. You don't think outside. You have to respect the integrity of the process, and you don't become programmatic. And you don't think that way. You live in the sentences. You're there with these people. Right now, I mean, I'm one of those authors who believe that an author has no more credibility as interpreter of a book than, than any reader has. In fact, the book is not completed till the reader reads it. The reader's mind sort of flows through the lines of the book. It's like an electric circuit. And some people have said to me, this is about entropy, isn't it? And, uh, well, yeah, that's a possible way to think about it, that there's some sense of something coming to an end about us in this book. But I don't, I don't testify to these things. I, I don't embrace any—in fact, I tend to agree with any interpretation as long as it's reasonable. Two recent interviews I had, one was with Nicholson Baker and one was with Margaret Atwood, and— Baker said he loves to hear authors and what they have to say because for him it illuminates. Margaret Atwood's position, on the other hand, is if I didn't write it, it's not part of my world. You figure out what you want to do with it. And Mm. I I would tend to think that that is how you look at it. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the work is done and it's there. The late critic Richard Poirier said fiction is by its nature imponderable, that it's really very mysterious, and if a book is any good, it shimmers with ambiguity. The word imponderable is very suggestive to me. And then, of course, we, we will remember the, the intentional fallacy that writers start out thinking they're doing something, intending to do something, and it doesn't turn out to be that at all. I was quite surprised, for instance, um, when I delivered the manuscript many years ago, Ragtime, and the, my editor then said to me, uh, you know, you tend to write about the past. I said, oh, I didn't realize that. <laughs> <laughs> You're right. I, those book, A couple of books are about the past. The, people always have different ways of looking at it. Someone, someone says, well, you you write historical novels. I, I disagree with that, but it's all right. And then they'll say, and also you have a political sensibility. Look at the book of Daniel. Okay. And then someone else say, and you do use the genres. I mean, Billy Bathgate, gangster, in your first novel, uh, Welcome to Hard Times, took place in the West. And uh, you do use genres. You bounce off. Oh, yeah, that's that's true. And also, you said a lot of books in New York City, so you're a New York writer. Yeah. And you have postmodern techniques in your work. Yes, yes, I do. So I'm an historical 
political genres, New York genres, postmodernist. During the period from 1959 until, I guess, 69, a 10-year period, you were an editor, a book editor. Do you think that impacted you in a specific way as a writer? I was told not to go into publishing when I was starting out as a writer. I began as a reader for a film company. You would read a book a day and write a synopsis of it and then deliver yourself of an opinion as to whether it would make a movie or not. From that, I went into publishing because I was did not consider myself a careerist as an editor. They kept giving me better and better jobs because I really didn't want them. <laughs> <laughs> and all that time, but it, it was very useful. First of all, reading so many books as a reader for a film company, I had great encouragement because I saw how many bad books were being published. It was very encouraging to me. And then when I was working with other writers as an editor, I think on the basis of that, I was able to look at my own work objectively and dispassionately in the way I would look at someone else's work. You know, this chapter doesn't belong here. This is this line is stupid. It's a, just have that same uh, judicious disinterest. So publishing was very valuable for me. And in addition to being exciting and... Uh, I finally left it, left it when I was writing the book of Daniel. I realized I couldn't. By that time, they'd made me the publisher as well as the editor-in-chief. And I, I, this book either was going to get done. So I, bench, I quit my job, best wage I'd ever had. I fortunately was invited to do a visiting writer gig at the University of California at Irvine. And that's where I finished the book of Daniel. And that was the end of my publishing career. Well, when you moved on to, to books like Ragtime, The March, other books that are very complex in their form, do you think your work as an editor let you step back and make sure that it all worked? Because Ragtime has so many different threads, and The March as well have so many different threads, and they have to come together just right. Well, you... you uh press on and things occur to you and you make discoveries. Uh, you don't feel possessive about what you write. You make the discoveries. You're, you're the instant reader of every line you write. You do have some sense of the overall form of the thing and um, characters emerge whole. They, you don't have to assemble them. They're there. Uh, you speak of threads, but it's, there's no sense of having any any aesthetic manifesto when you're doing it. I mean, some of these books are very clear, uh, linear narratives. Others are more collagist in the way they're constructed. And it's always the book that tells you what it has to be. And you just follow its dictates and and try to realize it and make it work, basically. Did you use virtually all the material you wrote for Homer and Langley, or were, were there a lot of dead ends at all? No, this was pretty straightforward. But that's an interesting question. The, you know, all fiction is a, an assemblage of scene and montage. And what I was interested here in this book, unlike, say, The March, which is very scenic very in the sense of, sense of drama, 
what I was interested to hear is, is the sense of, of montage, of someone's memory would just flow along and then there would, something would rise from that river and become an event or a scene. But it was the, the sense of the flow of, of this fellow's memory that I wanted to dominate the, the kind of text it is. In other words, scattered throughout, there are, I don't want to call them flashbacks. He talks about his past, but it's always within the context of the present. So it doesn't feel like a flashback in the same way. No, it, it, um, I wanted to, to uh, just have this sort of flow of memory with particular events coming up for more detail in terms of justifiable impact on their lives. E.L. Doctorow, the previous book was called Creationist and contained essays on people like the Marx Brothers, Melville, Fitzgerald, Hemingway, Einstein, essays published over a long period of time. Was that always intended to be some kind of project that just came along in steps? No. Those were all responses to invitations of one sort or another, to write an introduction to something of Scott Fitzgerald's or Sinclair Lewis. The piece about Einstein came of an invitation to speak at the Aspen Institute. The theme of that weekend was Einstein's life, and they brought in a lot of scientists, and they brought in me, which is pretty scary. I mean, I hadn't been in such an exalted company since I was a student at the Bronx High School of Science. So I talked about the experience of creativity for science, scientists, and it's parallel for literary creativity. Everything in there I was invited to do because I don't really naturally gravitate to nonfiction, to criticism. But once we realized, my editor and I, that there were uh, there was enough material for a book, uh, she said, well, let's do it. And uh, I put them together and sewed them together with a, an introduction and uh, called it creationists as a kind of a, well, you know why. I mean, <laughs> these are the creationists, Einstein and right. Mark Twain and, and the people who wrote Genesis. <laughs> E.L. Doctorow, obviously over the last few years, we've had to deal with political issues, and you have gotten involved writing for the nation, um, putting your voice out there. How easy was it or hard was it for you to take on a somewhat different role, a role beyond just being a novelist? Well, writing politics is, to me, as risky because uh, you use the current diction political diction. There's no way to get around it. You th- you say things like campaign finance, re- finance reform, and every time you say a phrase like that, it wince. But uh, every once in a while, something becomes necessary. Now, if someone has, has invited me to deliver a commencement speech, I take that very seriously, and I inevitably it becomes wake up, uh, uh, or these people were going to make your history for you. And last time I did that, the people were booing. This was at Hofstra University, and I was talking about the lies of President Bush, why we were going to war. In those days, he was claiming weapons of mass destruction. And everybody in the street knew it was a lie. But this school, Hofstra, happened to be in a very Republican (laughs) county, 
and so the parents were were booing me and and uh it was a great day. The best part of it was that the commencement was on a football field where the Jets used to practice. So I was on the 35-yard line giving my talk. But, you know, a friend of mine once said, if someone gives you a forum, take it. And so those times that I have done political speech, that too is a matter of invitation. Like the last one I did was a... Uh, a talk at the Library of Congress before the American Academy of Arts and Sciences and the American Philosophical Society about the same issue, the deterioration, the uh, subversion, if you will, of the Constitution and the, the sense of the whole country could just falling apart. At what point do you think maybe we're there now where we should we should stop waiting for Obama and hoping for Obama and begin finally saying, you know, we got to get out there. Well, the fact is um, I'm a kind of a Franklin Roosevelt liberal, one of those detestable liberals. And um, I'm still um, I'm still hopeful that uh, he will, that uh, he's smarter than I am. I'm pretty sure he is and that he knows what he's doing and it's all going to work out. What he's dealing with is not only economic disarray, a war that he was handed, ecological disaster impending, but he's dealing with a a country that has lost its sense of identity. However illusionary we all have been to discover that uh, we, we are torturers, to discover that our phones and emails are being illegally tapped into, uh, it's unsettling. And and there's a kind of hysteria on the land, that the sort of misdirected populism and racism and nativism and these shrill voices on the radio. And uh, we have a one of the major parties uh, seems to be run by people who are not patriots anymore. They want the country to fail so that their party will succeed. They're not patriots, they're partyists. So this sense of a of an identity, enormous identity crisis is what my feeling is, and that's what he's dealing with, apart from everything else. As you were talking, I was thinking, you know, going back over your books, you know, the one thing that Ragtime was the book Ragtime, and whatever your feelings about either the movie or the musical, it was about a sense of identity of America. That feeling, that solidness, felt to me like in December 2000, it just vanished. Mm, yeah. Yeah, one of the underlying themes of that book, I think, is assimilation. Three families. There's a kind of an implosion, and they become one family. Actually, the musical, um, I didn't like the movie at all. I thought it was a disaster. But the uh, the musical version is, uh, I mean, tonally it's quite different from the book. The book keeps its distance from the characters. It's told as an historical chronicle. You can't do that when people go around singing their feelings on stage. <laughs> so it's kind of an inversion of the tonal inversion of, of but the music is lovely and and the lyrics are very astute and Terence McNally did a kind of Brechtian thing to 
to make it all work in three hours. So I I think of it now. I mean, these people thought they were writing a musical. What they were writing was was an American opera, I think. And now there was a production. There was a production at the Kennedy Center in uh, Washington. They're bringing that to New York, reviving it on Broadway this fall. E.L. Doctorow, now that you've written Homer and Langley, have you begun thinking about your next project? No, it usually takes me six months to a year to recover from a book and to, for it's, it's, a, it's kind of like a hangover. And uh, you're still living with these guys and uh, thinking about them and... and uh, it takes a while for the for the whole world to fade from your mind so that you can look around. Can you ever go back and look at your old books, or are they just on the shelf and they're gone? Generally, I feel a kind of remote relationship. Occasionally, a new edition comes in, I'll crack it open, look at a page, and I say, oh, did I write that? That's pretty good. <laughs> or I'll find a line that makes me wince and quickly close the book. So it's When going back to the book of Daniel, um, obviously since then there's been a lot of historical material that was not available to you at that point. Uh, and this is separate from any of your other, of other works. Do you ever go back to think about it and think about what kind of book you would have written today? Or is the Yale doctor who wrote that knowing what he knew then so far in the past that you wouldn't even give that another thought? Well, I didn't know anything then. I didn't know those people. I did read some of the trial transcripts. And the reason I was able to write that book is the problem was being intimate with what was happening but really not understanding it at all. And my solution to get to that point was to write from the point of view of a child, Daniel, it would Daniel write the book so he could be living through this and not have any control over it and not really understanding it. In terms of the, what the revelations of the, uh, about the Rosenbergs, uh, uh, Julius Rosenberg spying, and he was a spy, this is all anticipated in the book, oddly enough. Everything that's happened with the Venona data and so on is, is all there in the book which to me is gratifying. People who haven't read that book think it's an, just a, a sort of a defense, a legal defense of two innocent people. But it's not that at all. It's really about 30 years of life in my country as told from the point of view of dissent of one kind or another, the old left and then the new left. You were speaking before about how a novel comes together, and it strikes me in talking to a lot of writers that underneath it all, it's not about pushing your ideas out. It's not about creating necessarily creating characters or stories, but it's more, and this is more, I think more true of fiction than nonfiction, it's really about exploring things that are in your head and will never, ever leave you alone until you try to figure them out. Yeah, there's a certain obsessive quality to this life, absolutely. And you learn uh, a lot about yourself, and you learn how to treat yourself as a writer. You, all the little tricks of self-destruction that you inflict on yourself to, to uh, sabotage what you're doing, you, and uh, the, the ways you have to be careful that when you've done something that doesn't work, it's always a small sign that you get. It's never loud. 
and you have to pay attention to it. Hemingway was a great psychologist of writing. He, he understood the way uh, he, he had very simple ideas. For instance, always stop writing when you know what's coming next. <laughs> he said that. And I've discovered that it's very important not to be terribly comfortable when you're writing. It maybe have a chair that wobbles or light that's not quite right. I've seen authors, writers who just furnish their studies just brilliantly, just something out of a movie, and they're stone cold dead. When you're looking at Homer and Langley uh, after the fact, is there anything you could point to and say, I learned this about me? I learned this about E.L. Doctorow? Well, that's a very personal question. All I will say by way of an answer is that uh, imagining what happens to these people and how they think and what their fate is, there has to be a personal kind of mirror operating there. And the ideas that you attribute to these people or that you find in these people. I mean, um, writing fiction is a form of ventriloquism, isn't it? You're throwing words into other heads. But that's all I'll say about that. You've been listening to an interview with E.L. Doctorow, whose latest novel is Homer and Langley. I'm Richard Walensky on Cover to Cover. Feedback on this and other Radio Walensky podcasts is appreciated. You can write to bookwaves at hotmail.com. You can listen to other interviews either as Radio Walensky podcasts or in the archives pages of bookwaves.com. Until next time, I'm Richard Walensky on the Area 941 Radio Walensky podcast.